It's like a fire in my bones that I can't explain. It's almost like I had no option. God said, you're gonna do this. We've had many what I call Red Sea moments. The Egyptians are behind you. If God doesn't do a miracle and we don't cross, what's gonna happen? That's the end. And then God makes a way. I mean, I could talk about those for hours. Welcome back to the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. It's Fearless with Mark and Amber, a husband and wife show sharing behind the scenes of our filmmaking ministry, Fearless Features. Fearless Features is a nonprofit filmmaking ministry creating movies on issues impacting our society and culture with a mission to educate, motivate, and inspire others to get involved and take a stand for biblical principles and values. I'm Amber Archer, half of your filmmaking team, and joining me today is the other half of this filmmaking team, and also his other title, Mix Master Mark. Mix Master Mark. You and my be, husband. You can be DJ Amber. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so you guys, we are wrapping up part of four of our interview with Mr. Ken Ham, the CEO and founder of Answers in Genesis and the highly acclaimed Creation Museum and world-renowned Ark Encounter. Ken Ham is also one of the most in-demand Christian speakers in North America and also happens to be part of the cast of our new documentary film, The Mind Polluters. So be sure to visit our website, fearlessfeatures.org, where you can search the archives if you've missed any part of these interviews. It's also where you can subscribe to this show via Apple, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It's also a great place where you can make that one-time or monthly donation. This is a donor-funded ministry, 100%. This is our full-time job Mm -hmm. to bring you guys this information and make an impact in our community and around the world. And it is an interesting... An interesting gig, d- uh, working for ourselves in a 100% donor-funded ministry. It's a walk know. of faith every day, and As, I'm excited to hear Ken's part four because yeah, he's going to talk all about it. Yeah, he talks all, all about the you know starting the Creation Museum and that they had the original vision in Australia, mm-hmm. and you know decades later it was came to fruition in Northern Kentucky mm-hmm. in America. And I, for one, am ecstatic that something like the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter are in the Midwest. Yeah. And not in California or, mm-hmm. you know, even Florida. We've been twice now to the Ark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we actually went to the Ark on the first movie project because we were down there filming for Inwood Drive. Yeah, we had to, well, we, yeah, so we did some filming on the way down and then we said, well, you know, we'll just kind of make a trip down there. We'll swing by. We had to get shots in Indianapolis. Yeah. So we got those shots and then we packed everything up and went to the Ark. It was a bonus for our kids because you know what? This is a full-time ministry. We have a full-time family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Yes, we do. And we enjoy it. We love it. Our kids love it. Yeah. So Ken, in this uh, episode, talks about the the terms uh, responsibility and sovereignty, mm-hmm. and uh, that really resonated with me when we were interviewing him because you think about how as a you know as an entrepreneur you think that you have you know we're wired to get things done, mm-hmm. we get things done, we make things happen, and it's hard for us to seed control of things oh my gosh when you know so many times you know sometimes several times a day 
you just get to that point point where you realize I don't have any options here. Mm-hmm. I need to do this. This is this is the the best direction that we can go, but we have no idea how to make it happen. And sometimes you feel like you're just, you know, running into the, the glass ceiling, the glass walls. You can see it over there, but you can't seem to get to it. And um, so it really resonates with us mm-hmm. because we do have our part to play. We have our responsibility as the workers, as those who are called uh, to prepare for the battle, to take the field, mm-hmm. to take take the next hill, um, but also balancing that with realizing that we're not really in control of anything. No, the Lord and is in control. The Lord is the one who's commissioned it, and he He is the one who gives victory, and he's the one who provides. I think it was really neat. Um, you guys will hear him talk about how parents would bring in missionaries to impact others for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, but, and he also talked about how, you know, a lot of them – didn't have much by we, by means of material wealth. Mm-hmm. And I think about I think about this ministry and how you know I continually tell people, listen, you become a force multiplier for truth. You know, we don't have much by means of of wealth, material wealth. No. But we are willing to make a difference. We're willing to take a stand on the authority of scripture and what the Lord has called us to do and do our part. And I think about all of you listening and everybody who will come alongside this ministry and we may not all have major material wealth, but we're all willing to come together and make sure that truth is told and it will be a lasting for generations. Yeah. And, you know, just as an example, when we started Inwood Drive, it was the same thing. We had no idea. We didn't have any capital mm-hmm. um, other than our human capital and equipment that we had and the experience. Mm-hmm. And we just said, we're just going to start. We start by starting. And as we went, people uh, came alongside and helped us with expenses, things like that. And people would ask us even before we started, well, how are you going to distribute it? How are you going to handle distribution? And I'd look at it and say, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea because. Because the model that we have is completely different from what you see in Hollywood entertainment and other movies. Right. People want a return. They want a financial return. Right. What we're interested in is a spiritual return. We mm-hmm. want people to hear the message. And so it really, it, and it, as counterintuitive as it's, as it really is to people in the, in any business, uh, financial return for the films that we do is really not high on the list (laughs) (laughs) it's it's really that because when that is your motivator it shapes decisions that you make Mm -hmm. and you start tailoring we talked about this a, a little while back one of the worst things that can happen to any ministry and we we talked about this specifically in in terms of churches is when they decide that they need to have an outreach, uh, and uh, a, like a marketing mindset, yeah. to you know, outreach into the community, and I just that makes me cringe because we've we've worked in marketing mm-hmm. for a long time, and I just look at that and I say, 
here's the problem. Marketing, the marketing mindset is what does the customer want? Let's give them that. Mm -hmm. And that is not... That is not ministry. And people who are paying them, it's like, what's my ROI? Return right. on investment? Right. So, you know, right. you're you're tailoring your message or whatever you're doing towards the returns on all these things. And that's that's not what this ministry is about. Yeah. So while there is consideration given with any project of uh, who is your audience going to be, mm -hmm. the last thing in the world, I hate to I mean, just to be so blunt about it, but. I'm not concerned with what the audience is going to think. <laughs> I'm concerned about the truth. Mm -hmm. I know who the audience is for the most part. How they react to it is between them and the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the difference between our responsibility and the Lord's sovereignty, it's, it's our responsibility to take it as far as we can, and the Lord will provide the way to get there. So without further ado, let's listen in on this more upbeat conversation. Part four, Mr. Ken Ham. What, what made you decide to come to America to be a missionary? You know, it's interesting. I was brought up in a Christian home in Australia. And just to, to jump forward to uh, 1995 when my father uh, passed away and a brother of mine who has since passed away as well, uh, was sitting with my father and said to him, why did you love God's word so much? And he said, well, my father died when I was 16. So he said, I didn't have an earthly father, so I turned to the words of my heavenly father and read them over and over and over and over and over again. He saturated himself in the word of God. And so my father was so adamant about never knowingly compromising the word of God. And he taught us as children over and over again God knows everything. We are finite beings. We know nothing compared to what God knows. Never put yourself above God's word. When you read God's word, try to stop taking man's ideas outside the Bible to God's word. Always look at, you know, um, he taught us the grammatical interpretive uh, historical interpretive method. In other words, you start from scripture. If it's history, it's history. If it's poetry, doesn't mean it doesn't teach truth, but you understand it's said in a poetic way. Um, if it's prophetic, you, you understand that. So you let it speak to you according to the type of literature and, and language, not you impose ideas on it. And, and so my father taught us to smell liberal theology at a million miles. Um, you know, f for instance, in Australia, when... Um, when there was uh, a, a situation where there was a split and the Presbyterian Church and Methodist Church combined to be called the Uniting Church. And then there were those that were the continuing Presbyterians and those from the Methodists that went away from that. But the basis of union was that the Bible contained the Word of God. And that was part of their uh, basis. You know, they say the Bible contains the Word of God. Well, as my father would say, it doesn't contain it. It is the word of God. Like Paul says in Thessalonians, it is not the word of man. It is in truth the word of God. And so I was brought up like that. And uh, so any time something came along that contradict the Bible, my father had always taught us, if something contradicts the Bible, you go to the Bible, make sure you're understanding God's word as written. But you, you don't just say, oh, well, God's word must be wrong here. 
or whatever. You let it speak to you. And if there's still that conflict, then you question man's word, not God's word. And even if you don't have an answer to man's word, doesn't mean there's not an answer. It just means we don't know everything because we know nothing compared to what God knows. And, you know, that really helped me growing up, that only God knows everything. I know nothing compared to what God knows. And so when I went to high school and was taught evolution, came home to my parents and my father said, well, I, I don't know the answers to all these things about ape men and the millions of years, but I do know this. This is what God's word says. It's the foundation in Genesis for the rest of the Bible and all of our doctrines. We can't compromise God's word, so we need to wait for answers. It was interesting when, um, when I was uh, in the fourth year of university, I was able to come across some books that gave me some answers in regard to fossils and you can't have death before sin and the flood of Noah's day and so on. When I became a teacher in 1975, the first class, science class in a public school, the kids said, so we heard you're a Christian. How can you be a Christian when we know the Bible's not true? Why is that? Because of what they're taught in their textbooks about millions of years and evolution. So I started to give them some of those answers uh, that I had. And they even said, Noah couldn't get the animals on the ark. You know, and I said, well, how many animals and how big was the ark? They had no idea, but they'd heard it couldn't be true, right? So I gave them those answers. And that had an impact on those kids. And, and actually, I even taught them about the Tower of Babel and that we're all different people groups, going back to Adam. And three, uh, three young ladies from the Aboriginal community, the Australian Aboriginal community, who in my class came to me afterwards and said, sir, tell us more. And I realised, of course, Darwin taught that they were closer to the apes and, and so on, and they were, they, they were actually hunted down in Australia by people wanting specimens for evolution. And I realised how important it was to them to understand we're all of, of one family, and that's how I got into talking about the one race, one blood issue. Uh, so it, it was also um, interesting that uh, during... Uh, my uh, university years, going to church, same church as my parents, and a little devotional book came out that they handed out church, and it said that Noah's flood was just a local event. And my father got so upset because why are we why are we doing that? And you know, you need to not hand this book out, he said to the pastor, because it's undermining the authority of God's word. And so my father knew that the Bible taught it was a global flood. And he and he knew that that was an integral event in history because that's where most of the apostles come from and and so on. And so there's all this background. And then when I started speaking in church Bible studies, for instance, I found out most Christians thought you didn't believe Genesis and you had to believe in evolution. And I was taking my science students from the public school to museums and they're all from an evolutionist perspective. So do you know, back in the 70s, God gave me a burden. Why can't we have a Christian museum, one that teaches creation? And it's interesting, it's a long story, but uh, through all of that, uh, I uh, eventually, I and another colleague of mine in Australia founded an organisation in 1977 that began in our house in Australia uh, to actually bring creation apologetics materials resources into Australia. We ran the first creation apologetics conference in 1977. In 1979, I left school teaching to go 
uh, full-time uh, into the ministry. Uh, really, it started as a book ministry to get resources into people's hands, and I started doing some speaking and that sort of thing. In 1980, one of the board members that helped us to, to found the ministry uh, in our home and I stood on a piece of property and prayed that God would let us build a creation museum. Now that was in 1980. Well, the creation museum was opened in 2007 in America, in Northern Kentucky. So God's ways are not our ways. But uh, I can see through all of that how God led because in the 1980s, I was asked by the publisher of Creation Apologetics Books in America to come to America and to do talks in churches. And actually, I came over for a number of years and traveled all across America, spoke in many, many different states. And I started to see that there are a lot more churches in America than Australia, a lot more Christians. It was a bigger population. Uh, this was more the center of the business world. It was easy to get to for the rest of the world. But the church was in great need in America too, because so many people believed in evolution in millions of years. And so in 1986, when I was over in America, uh, Dr. Henry Morris, who was one of the co-authors of the book, The Genesis Flood, along with Dr. John Whitcomb, and he started an organization called the Institute for Creation Research in San Diego, California. He asked if I would come over and help them to speak in churches across America because my ministry was more to the church and, uh, and to teach in a way that was really easy to understand not from a high scientific perspective. And so I saw that America was sort of the center of the Christian world. And so the board in Australia of the ministry agreed for me to come over here. And I did that for seven years. And then instead of returning to Australia, I realized if we want to build a creation museum, it has to be in America somewhere. And so instead of returning to Australia, I and um, uh, two other colleagues who I was working with began to look for where would you build a creation museum in America? You look for somewhere that's central to the population. And so we looked at places like St. Louis and Kansas and so on, but we end up choosing Northern Kentucky for a number of reasons. But where we are in Northern Kentucky, right near Interstate 75, the second busiest north-south interstate in America, within a one-day drive of two-thirds of America's population. And it was another big faith step for us, but we came out here specifically to build a creation museum. And you know what? We had nothing. We had no money. And yet we knew God had called us to do it. And he'd given me that burden going back to the 70s. And because of the way in which my parents had trained us in the Word of God and equipped us with a, apologetics, and it, it was it's like a fire in my bones that I can't explain. I mean, it really is. It's, it's almost like I had no option. God said, you're going to do this. And there's been lots of battles, and we've gone through lots of valleys, and we get up on the mountaintops and then down through valleys, and we've had many what I call Red Sea moments where you're at the Red Sea, and the Egyptians are behind you. Uh, and if God doesn't do a miracle and we don't cross, what's going to happen? That's the end. And then God makes a way. I mean, I could talk about those for hours. And look what God has done. And now with the Ark, the Creation Museum, the Ministry of Answers and Genesis, it impacts tens of millions of people a year all over the world. 
but it's a legacy of parents who taught their children to stand on the word of God and to be equipped to defend the Christian faith and to have a truly Christian worldview. And I look at all of the ministry of Answers in Genesis and realize what it's a tribute to parents who they used all their resources to bring up their kids to love the Lord and to bring in missionaries to impact others for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, they didn't have anything much in the way of material wealth at all, but look what the Lord used, look how he used them to now see a ministry that's impacting tens of millions a year. What encouragement. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story for missionaries everywhere, people who are just using what they have. I mean, it, it's so it, it's such an encouragement to me, to us. <laughs> it's, it's, just a, it's just a step of faith. We it, have nothing. It, yeah. But the Lord has called us. It's a, it's if the a Lord's burden. called you, and it, it's, you know, it, when people ask me, but how do you do that? And how, how do you get the money for it and all the rest of it? You know, as, as I say, as I look through Scripture, there's responsibility and sovereignty, and they go hand in hand. Man's responsibility, God's sovereignty. So there's not one without the other. It's the same in salvation, responsibility and sovereignty. And uh, so... As um, as we stepped out, for instance, when I was going to leave school teaching, we contacted a number of our friends. If I did this and went full-time, would you support us? We asked them, and they said, yes, we would. There was no guarantees, but it wasn't as if we hadn't talked about it and talked about it with others and seeing if we would get that support. And even though you know we had to live very frugally and so on uh, at first, nonetheless, God provided. And then over time, the steps of faith get bigger and bigger. Um, it's like fundraising. You know, we want to build an ark, so we tell people what we're going to do. We provide ways in which they give, but we step out in faith. So it all goes hand in hand. It's interesting, and the number of people that when they look at the ark and they look at the Creation Museum, and I mean, they, they're amazed. They say, how could this happen? You know, how could it happen? Well, God raised up the people to make it happen. You know, as I look back on all of this, often the secular media, when they've interviewed me, have said, so where did you find all this talent? Because we have, it's not just the Ark, the Creation Museum, the two two leading Christian-themed attractions in the world. Yeah, and you look at the quality of the exhibits, they're amazing. We have our own design studios. And so we have another facility where we have 100,000 square feet where we have designers and sculptors. And, and then there's the Ministry of Answers in Genesis. And you consider the hundreds and hundreds of staff that we have and all the seasonals that we employ. I mean, we probably have about... Um, uh, 400, you know, full-time staff and another 300 full-time equivalent staff. So you're looking at 700-odd. And then you're looking at hundreds of seasonals we employ for the Ark and the Creation Museum. And you, and you go through, we have our own horticulture, horticultural department. And so we have specialists in that area. In our zoos, we have all sorts of specialists uh, who have to be trained to look after all these animals. We have a zoo at the Ark and a smaller one at the Creation Museum. And then we have, you know, plumbers and electricians and then carpenters. And then you have your 
uh, IT people and your web people and you have your customer service people, we have our legal department, then we have our researchers, our PhD scientists, we have our speakers, we have our guest services staff, culinary staff. I mean, even that, we have our own chefs that have to look after all the food and that for all the people that come to the attractions. And uh, as you start to list all the different sorts of people uh, that we have, and, and, and some of these designers, the graphic artists that we have, and the writers, and how do they all end up in, in Northern Kentucky like this? And when the secular media have asked me, how did you find all that talent? I, I say to them, you know, really, the best way to describe it is like Noah with the animals on the ark. God sent the animals to him. He didn't have to go out and find them. And really, in many ways, that's what's happened here. When we're building the Creation Museum, a man called Patrick Marsh, who'd worked for Universal Studios in theme parks around the world, heard about the Creation Museum and came and said to us, how are you going to do your exhibits? I, I had no idea. We didn't, you know, <laughs> we just knew we had to build a Creation Museum and we had some dinosaur sculptures by Buddy Davis and we're going to figure out something, but we have to do this. You know, and he comes along and says, I want to design it for you. And we'd already, you know, um, started to build the building and so on. And so they, um, and so he took the script. I wrote a script on the seven seas of history from Genesis to Revelation. He took that and turned it into the Creation Museum that we see today. And because he was here, he attracted other artists to come alongside him. And when I look back, I, I see all these people from all sorts of different places that God brought in at various times. Some of them were impacted by our teaching ministry in the early days. Some of them were impacted by our website. And you look at all these different people who've been impacted by the ministry in different ways in different times, or by their parents who were impacted by the ministry who brought them up uh, on the right foundation. And then God brings them all together over time to bring together here in Northern Kentucky to produce this ministry the way it is, it it's a God thing. It's amazing. Because we're all one body in many parts. Yep. You know, we all have and, gifts that the Lord has prepared in advance. And God is the one that draws the people in yeah. various places. So that's the end of our conversation with uh, Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis. Hope you've enjoyed all four parts of this. If you've missed any parts, please go back into the archives on fearlessfeatures.org and you can pick up uh, parts one through four with Ken Ham. Uh, you can go back and catch up on uh, all the episodes. Uh, and speaking of episodes then that you're, that you're not going to want to miss, mm -hmm. um, tomorrow we have a special episode coming out for Memorial Day weekend. It's a, we're going to release it on Friday. Um, and extra episode this it's week. It's an extra episode. And it's it's a little extra long, um, but it it's a special episode. So so what we're gonna share with you for Memorial Day weekend is the life story of uh Mr. Dick Gaster. Mm -hmm. Um you wanna tell people how we knew <laughs> Dick Gaster? So we have been apart for over 15 years, been a part of a Sunday school class. And when we joined 15 years ago, it was older generation. They were 60s and above, mm -hmm. 70s and above. And we've been there for 15 years. And we got to know and love all of the people there. And they've been such great 
role models and mentors over the years, but um, he and his wife, Treva, were a part of our Sunday school class. And in one conversation, um, I overheard that he had been on an air crew in World War II. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I was part of the Air Force Auxiliary, known as the Civil Air Patrol. And one of my uh, duties at that particular time was helping to run the cadet program. Mm -hmm. So it was like junior ROTC. And we would, you know, it was uh, training uh, cadets who were planning to go into future military service. And so whenever I would find somebody who had military experience who could talk to us, mm-hmm. you know, then I thought that this is something that I wanted to wanted to do. And so I asked him if he could come and talk to these Air Force cadets, mm-hmm. basically, about his life story. And I thought, well, if I'm going to have him there, I'm going to record it. Now, <laughs> I didn't record video, but I did record the audio. Mm-hmm. This was uh, recorded in 2009. Uh, Dick Gaster died in October of 2013. But this is an amazing, amazing story. These are treasures. Yeah. I mean, for people who don't know people who have lived through the world wars mm-hmm. and and known life during that time, these are really these. It's it's really incredible to listen to. Yeah. So just to just to give you an overview of why you want to why you want to tune in and listen to Dick Gaster's story. Um, he was, uh, he was a teenager when, uh, when Pearl Harbor was born bombed mm-hmm. and he figured that the war would be over by the time he got out of high school and he ended up being drafted, went into the army air Corps and spent, did 35 missions mm-hmm. as a waste gunner on a B 24 liberator. Mm-hmm flew over uh, uh, all over Europe, and his final mission was part of the Battle of the Bulge. Mm-hmm. And you just have to you just have to hear it. Yeah. So tune in for tomorrow's special with Mr. Dick Gaster. Thank you guys so much for sticking around to the end and joining us here on this journey. We truly appreciate you. If you can visit our website for more information, fearlessfeatures.org. Have a wonderfully blessed day, and we'll see you tomorrow or tune in tomorrow for tomorrow's special episode.